Well, open your Bibles to Malachi 1 and 1 Corinthians 10. Malachi 1 and 1 Corinthians 10. Now, there's something I don't think I've ever said before at the beginning of a sermon. Open your Bibles to Malachi. I've never preached on Malachi specifically before as a book. Some of you might wonder how I choose what books of the Bible to preach on or what topics to preach on. I'm going to show you how I choose. Can everybody look up here a minute? I, I sit in my office and I hold the Bible in front of me and I go like this. Same way you choose where to have your devotions in the morning. Yeah, yeah. No. There is a little more thought that goes into it than that. Although, I guess it would be fair to say I could just about open the Bible anywhere and preach and God has said it's all important. Seriously, January is a month every year that we focus on the issue of stewardship. And what I mean by that is God says that we are stewards of the things that we call possessions. A steward in the Bible was a person who managed somebody else's belongings. The most common use of the word would have been what we would call a house manager or the manager of an estate. Uh, like Joseph was in the Old Testament for the, uh, for the captain of the guard who was the head of the jail uh, or that type of thing. He, he, Joseph managed this guy's house. And you remember at one point he said, my master doesn't even know what's in his house because he trusts it all to me. It would be like having a farm and, you know, a lot of employees and all of that. And the guy in charge of it was the steward. He was the house steward. He didn't own any of it. The owner, the, the master, owned it. He was responsible to use it according to the best uh, wishes of the master. God says that we are stewards of everything we own. He is the owner. He is the source of all that we have. And so we're to use, our, whether it's our clothes or our money or our house or our time or a skill that we have, whatever it is we have, we're to use it for his best interest. And that is what God calls stewardship. And so once a year in the month of January, as we start a new year with new officers, and new plans for ministry and a new budget, we talk about how we're going to use what we have for the Lord. And as I considered how I might do that, uh, I thought uh, the book of Malachi would be a great place to spend some time studying. And in introduction to any Old Testament book, I would have you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, which tells us how we should study the Old Testament a major part of the way, if you will, that we should study the Old Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 1, says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that our fathers, when Paul uses that word, our fathers, he's talking about the, uh, the, the relatives from long ago. He's going back into the Old Testament time period. Our fathers were under the cloud and passed through the sea. That's the Red Sea experience, the cloud that led them, and the sea parted, and they came through into the uh, desert on their way to Israel. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness." Now, here it is. You might want to underline this if it's not in your Bible. Now, these things became our examples 
to the intent that we should not lust after things, evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them were tempted and also were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. And another verse for you to underline, he repeats the theme from verse 6. Now all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition, upon whom the end of the age, ages have come. So he says, look, when you go back and read the Old Testament, there is an example there for you. Now, there is more than just an example in the Old Testament. I understand that. We learn a tremendous amount about God the Father. We learn some things about Jesus. We have prophecies of Jesus. There is specific truth. But when we would think of applying the Old Testament to our life, we do it by way of example. And so I understand as we turn back to Malachi chapter 1 that Malachi was not written to Christians. It was written to Jewish Old Testament believers. And there are some differences. But the example, the moral principle of what they went through also teaches us today. All of those moral lessons that are illustrated in the Old Testament are uh, uh, mentioned in specific ways in the New Testament, and we'll see that as we go through. So turn back with me to the book of Malachi. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. Malachi is writing to uh, a mixed group of people. Some of them, no doubt, were true believers in God. Some of them weren't. But it was God's chosen people, the people of Israel. And they had a, a strong... Um, appearance of religion. They had a strong activity in terms of religion. And yet God is going to confront them about their relationship to him. And what, what's interesting is that we're going to find in this is that God was never about form and activity. He was always about the heart. And so, first of all, we're going to have a relationship snapshot here. And the first thing we understand is this. God declares his love. He says, it's an unusual way to my way of thinking, according to the rest of the Bible, to begin a book. Right off the bat, God says, I have loved you. And yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Let's look at, uh, let's think about God's declaration of love. In a minute, we're going to look at Deuteronomy 7, but not yet. Um, in Deuteronomy 7... God at length spells out his love for his people in choosing them to be his people. Here's what he says in Jeremiah 31.3. I have loved you with an ever 
lasting love. God said, my commitment to you is permanent. In, I, in Isaiah 49, 16, God said this about his people, that God had engraved them on the palms of his hands. It almost sounds like a tattoo. God said, I'm, I've, I've written your name, I've engraved it, I've cut it into the skin so that it can never go away. God plainly declared his love for them a number of times, as he has plainly declared his love for us. The most famous verse in the Bible, by, by many accounts, is John 3.16, in which God says, For God so what? So loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. God says He loves you. He claims that that's true. Like He said He loved the people in the Old Testament. But they said, In what way have you loved us? Can you, can you picture in your mind a husband and a wife that are estranged? God calls Israel his wife, you know. And he talks about them leaving him as spiritual adultery. Can you picture two people? One of them is saying, I have loved you. And the other one says, oh, come on. From everything we can gather in this book and our knowledge of Old Testament history, Malachi is writing after the captivity and return of Israel. Now, what's the captivity of Israel? If you're not familiar with your Old Testament history, here's the deal. God chose his people. They led them to the, to the land of Israel and commanded them to follow him. And he said, now, if you don't obey me, if you don't follow me, there's going to be consequences. If you do follow me, there will be blessings. And after many, many years of them turning from God and coming back and turning from God and coming back, they turned so much that God said, that's it. I am going to send you into captivity. And a large group of the people of Israel were actually herded off out of Israel several hundred miles away to what is today Iraq, if you will. Babylon, Assyria were the names in those days. And so they're out of the land. You can obviously imagine if somebody came along to you and said, get up your stuff, you're going to walk several hundred miles to your new home where you will essentially be our slaves, that that would not be considered a good day. Okay? So this has happened to them. Now, after 70 years, as God promised, he orchestrated events so that, the, that all who wanted to were able to come back over those several hundred miles back to Israel to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and, and rebuild the temple, and that's right at the chronological end of the Old Testament. This book is written right in that time period. So these people have just viewed the events of captivity. I mean, they weren't alive during the whole period because it was too long of a time, but the, the fresh history would be captivity and then back. Now, when they came back to the temple and they rebuilt the temple, it says that People who remembered what Solomon's temple used to look like cried because this temple was a shoddy representation of that original glorious one. So they, they knew how great things had been. They knew how tough things had been. And now they're back in the land, but things aren't so great. And it's out of that that they're looking at God saying, you're telling me you love me? They questioned God's love because of their recent history. They were like spoiled children. 
You know what a spoiled child is like? A spoiled child is like this. You go to the child and say, we're going to California. Great! And you go to California, everything's hip, hip, hooray. And you come back, and the moment you get back, what are we doing now? Because the spoiled child lives in the moment of pleasure. And in fact, on that trip to California, you know what the spoiled child's going to be doing. If every moment isn't full of pleasure and enjoyment, they're going to let you know about it. There's no big picture with a spoiled child. It's all in the moment. And that's what the people of Israel did. They said, they said, how have you loved us? One author put it this way, behind this question is a bitter complaint about the way the people felt they had been treated by the deity. God had not prospered them in return as they thought they deserved. The implication is that if God loved them, he would make them rich. They failed to remember they were in exile and the city and temple were torn down because of what? Because of their sin. Because of the sin of their forebears. And, and, and so God had judged them because of that. And here's the most interesting quote that I think really puts this into perspective, this question and answer. Although God was under no obligation to entertain such an insensitive question, because he is long-suffering, he responded in love and not judgment. Isn't that a great observation? God has done all of these things for the people of Israel for hundreds of years. And they look up and go, you don't love me. Okay. If you were God, do you know what you'd have done? You're right. <sighs> Would it be blasphemous for me to say I can imagine God taking a deep breath and going, Okay. I'm going to explain one more time. And that's what he does. He goes on now to say, okay, let me ask you a question then. You say I haven't loved you. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Now, if you know your Bible, you know that Jacob and Esau were what? Twins. He says, was not Jacob Esau's brother? If you also know your Bible, Jacob is who? Jacob is the, the head of the nation of Israel. He is the first. Out of him were 12 sons that were the 12 heads of the 12 tribes from whom all of the rest of the Jewish people are descended. So Jacob is, is the head guy. He's the patriarch. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet says the Lord, says the Lord, yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Turn back with me to Genesis 25. What God does in answering their objection about his love is he goes right back to the beginning. Right back to the beginning. Genesis 25, 21. First book in the Bible. Genesis 25, 21. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Isaac is Jacob's dad, and you'll, as you'll see in a minute. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. 
But the children struggled together within her. And she said, if all is well, why am I like this? <laughs> Have you been there, ladies? If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. She went and prayed. And the Lord told her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other. And the older shall serve the younger. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau. And it means hairy. Those of you, I don't know if anybody's here with the name Harold or Harry. This is where it comes from. There you go. Verse 26. Afterward, his brother came out and his hand took a hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob, and that means somebody who takes the place of another one. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So the boys grew. And Esau was a skillful hunter and man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man, dwelling in tents. He was a white-collar kind of a guy. Esau was a blue-collar kind of a guy. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. Can you imagine his dad saying, Hey, Esau, love to have some venison for dinner tonight. No problem, Dad. And off he trucked into the wood, woods and came dragging the deer behind him. But Rebecca loved Jacob. Jacob was kind of a mama's boy. And nothing improper is implied in that, saying they're two different kind of guys. Verse 29. Now, Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with some of that red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Edom, which means red. The Edomites, the land, the country we're going to talk about in a minute, comes from that name. But Jacob said, sell me your birthright as it is this day. Birthright was to the oldest son. He had the rights of inheritance, the primary right of inheritance from the family. And because Esau was older, he had that. So Jacob says, I'll give you food if you trade it for the birthright. And uh, verse 32, and Esau said, look, I'm about to die. So what's this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. That is the definition of being short-sighted. Okay? Teenagers, you're going to be tempted to sell your birthright for stew, for something that will last for a few hours. Moms and dads, we are too. The world does that all the time. You can have this right now. That's the nature of sexual immorality, you know. Pleasure right now. And a lifetime of heartache. He says, what is it to me? I'm, I'm about to die. Swear to me this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and a stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank and arose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. In other words, Esau said, it's no big deal. Now think about it. <laughs> and now we're going to see in a minute that this was all in God's plan. No surprises by God. But if Esau had known what was ahead for Jacob, 
and the great nation that was going to come from him, and then the Savior is going to come from him? Do you think he would have said, I'm starving to death. I'm going to sell my birthright for that mess of stew. No, he would not have. That's right. Here is this event in the life of Jacob and Esau. Now, turn with me to Romans 9. In Romans 9, we find, uh, could we say the moral to the story? Part of it from God. God comments on that episode with Jacob and Esau. Romans 9, verse 10. <clears throat> and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. Because of all of that, it was said to her, the older shall, shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. He quotes from Malachi. Here's the deal. He says, look, I'm going to tell you why this happened with Jacob and Esau. And here's the thing. God said, I have determined that Jacob will be the head of the nation of Israel with the 12 patriarchs coming out from him, his 12 sons. I have determined it. And, he, and the author, by God's inspiration, is very careful to point out it wasn't because one of them was sinful and one of them was righteous, as in God looking down and saying, Oh, Esau, he, he's going to give up his birthright. He doesn't care anything about this. So, poof, I'm done with him. And there's Jacob. He's a real nice man that knows how to cook stew. I'll pick him. No, that's the misconception that many people have about what they term predestination or God's foreknowledge, looking ahead saying, Which one's going to do the right thing? I'll pick him. There's nothing God about that. I could have done that. You see? But God says, while they were in the womb, even before they were in the womb, He says to Rebecca, Rebecca, you're going to have a child, but the older will serve the younger. And why? That the cause of election might stand. And, and folks, if you've had a hard time understanding the doctrine of election, it's defined in one sentence right here, verse 11 of Romans 9. Not of works, but of him who calls. That's the deal with election. We're going to look at it a little bit further in a minute, but you remember that phrase, not of works, but of him who calls. If God looked down through time and saw the good people or saw the people who would believe or, or something like that and then picked them for his children, then salvation is of these people, not of God. And we have cause to stand before God and say, you sure didn't make a good choice there, God. We're in this together, God. You and me, we're teammates. And the truth is, God said, look, I did this with Jacob and Esau in part for you, Christian, so you could see an example of what I did with you. Now we go back. Let's turn to Ephesians. Excuse me. Let's go to Ephesians. Let's read the same truth directly about us. We read it this morning on the screen. Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. He's already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. 
just as he chose us in him when before the foundation of the world do you see the illustration with Jacob and Esau God chose them before the conception God chose you before you were born now you might be sitting here today and you say no, I, I've never believed in Christ as my Savior am I chosen you know what Pastor Larry knows how to tell. You go in his office, he has a test he can administer. No. No, that's not true. Cindy Heath, she's the one that works at the medical office. She can take a blood test and tell you if you're chosen. No, nobody knows who's chosen. I'll tell you this, if you're sitting here, you're having the opportunity to come to Christ. I know that. You're sitting here hearing that God loves you so much that He was not content to let you go your own way. The essence of election, in my mind, is, is not so much that God sends people to hell because He doesn't. What He does is He takes His hand completely off of some people and lets them go on their own sinful, merry way. And other people, He says, I am going to orchestrate the things in your life and I am going to put the things in your heart and I'm going to let the Holy Spirit open your eyes to the truth of the gospel so that someday you will wake up and say, I found the Lord. <laughs> and the truth is, God found you. And you'll see that on the other side of your salvation. When you look back, you'll go, wow, isn't God great? And that's the point. That's what Romans 9 uh, tells us. The point is, it's not of your works, it's of God's work in calling. And the people in Malachi's age completely missed that. They're going, yeah, we're really something. And God's going, hello, have you remembered Jacob and Esau? Look on at Ephesians chapter 2. See, sometimes people get their mind around this concept of God choosing, and they really struggle with it because they say, God is sending people to hell. Now look what Ephesians 2 tells us. You, you, if you're a Christian, this is your experience. You have been made alive when once you were dead in trespasses and sin. Trespass and sin. Well, if you're dead, you're totally controlled by something other than your own will. God says before we come to Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sin. I got bad news for you. The only person that ever had a free will was Adam and Eve. They were not sinful, and they were not righteous. They had the opportunity to choose. And even with completely free will, as far as I can understand it, in a completely perfect place, what did they do when sin came along, and the temptation and the person of Satan and then the serpent? What did they do? So free will isn't going to help you, is it? <laughs> Not going to help you to argue for the fact that everybody has a free will. No, we don't. Our will is dead in trespasses and sin in which we once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we once all conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature, by nature, Children of wrath. That's how we're born, folks. We're born with a bent towards sin. 
We're born so that when sin presents the temptation to us, we follow along with it. We are by nature the children of wrath. But God, verse 4, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together in Christ. That is what election is about. It's about God reaching down and going, you are so messed up, Dave Lunsford, that I am just going to reach down in there and start changing things and cause things to come together and open your eyes so that when your Sunday school teacher says, would you like to have Jesus in your heart? You'll go, yeah! And then someday, you'll be able to stand and say, thank you! The glory goes to God. That's the whole point of Ephesians 4, or 1, 2, chapter 1. Look at verse 6. To the praise of His glory. Uh, and, he, and he says that a couple of times over. Now, go back with me to the book of Malachi. Do you, what you need to understand here is God's people were valuing His love based on their current events. They had completely forgotten that the whole reason they were a child of God is because of God's love initially to get a hold of them. And so he says, I have loved you. In what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Does that mean God had angry, hateful thoughts for Esau? I, I don't believe it does. I believe what it's trying to communicate to us is, is that God turned his affection and attention toward one and turned it away from the other completely. And then, of course, in time, Esau and his descendants sinned so greatly that God brought further judgment upon them. It's entirely possible, and here's a thought that you ought to consider. In the initial work of Jacob and Esau, Esau himself gave up his birthright. Now, I know later on Jacob used trickery to get it from the dad, but if he hadn't used trickery, I would suppose he could go to the dad and say, Hey, Dad, I'm sorry, Esau sold it to me. It's mine. And so he gets the birthright, and, and then the people of Israel come from him, Esau and his descendants had the opportunity to worship Jehovah God with the people of Israel. There was always a possibility for people to proselyte, that is to come in from the outside of the Jewish nation. But they chose instead to persecute the Jewish nation. And so we read then that what happens is not only... Did God love Jacob and hate Esau? But look at, look at uh, verse 3. Esau I have hated and I have laid waste his mountains. This now is the perspective of time after all of these sinful things that they have done to the people of Israel. And if you're following my notes, which I'm sort of doing, I'm on point B, which says a reminder about their permanence. And what we need to note here about the, peop the people who descended from Esau, they're called Edomites, remember? The red, uh, they're called Edomites. Um, at least seven events 
caused God to say, that's it. Not only are you not the chosen people, but I'm going to destroy you. They refused to allow Moses and the people of Israel passage through their land during Israel's pilgrimage to Canaan. If you could picture in your mind up here the, the Mediterranean Sea and the little slice of Israel, Egypt is down here on the north side of Africa, and the people of God come out of Africa, and they're going to go up to Israel. They needed to pass through a little piece of land that's called Jordan today. And that's where the Edomites live, the descendants of Esau. And they said, you can't go through here. And so because of that, that made their journey harder and more dangerous. That was one of the reasons that God set about to totally destroy them. Secondly, of these seven points, many of Israel's kings fought the Edomites because of their opposition to Israel. Edom did not help Judah when they were invaded by foreign powers. Edom rejoiced over Judah's captivity. Edom looted Jerusalem after her destruction. Edom helped set up roadblocks to prevent Jewish people from fleeing their enemies. Edom delivered the people of Judah to their captors. And so God says here in verse 3, all that stuff has happened. Malachi is at the tail end of it saying, and God is saying this, Esau I have hated, verse 3, and I've laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. That's, that's the Seahawks' life verse. <laughs> we will return and rebuild the desolate places. It could happen. When donkeys fly. Then, then says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness. Um, you might, your translation might say the border of wickedness. So not, it was a way that they named a country. A, a, sort of a, a nickname, if you will. And the people against whom the Lord have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see and you shall say the Lord is magnified. God did not condemn Esau to hell from, from birth. He did not condemn him to be living in a destroyed area from birth. The country of Edom was next door to Israel, and they chose to oppose God's people. And so God said, I'm not letting them recover. The Edomites were completely overthrown by the Romans in A.D. 70, along with Jerusalem, and they were never heard from again as a people group. Now, obviously, the piece of dirt is still there, but the people group is done over history. They were mostly overthrown already by the time Malachi had been written, but it was completed by the Romans in A.D. 70. Now turn with me to Romans 8 as we, as we bring this around to, to right where we're living today. And listen to this quote from J. Montgomery Boyce. All of God's dealings with Jacob and his descendants was in love. When they were ignorant, he blessed them with a true knowledge of himself. When they were weak and defenseless, he empowered them and shielded them from enemies. When they strayed, he disciplined them. When they persisted in wickedness, he eventually sent the Babylonian captivity, as the prophets had warned he would do over many generations. Then he brought them back to Judah, established them within the walls of a refortified city, and had them rebuild the temple. 
there was a blessing and judgment, building and destruction. But in all these things, God had loved them and was continuing to work with them in order that they might become a precious and holy people. And then he has this sentence last. Edom perished utterly. And so when God says to the people through Malachi, he's saying, look, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What he's really telling them is, look, I've been working with you and working with you and working with you, trying to get you to become a precious, holy people to myself. Esau came along and I said, no, I'm not choosing you. And then he sinned and boom, I destroyed him. Do you see the contrast? That's what it means to be a child of God. God will never kick you out. God may chastise you. Hebrews 12 tells us about that. But why does he do it? He does, he does it so you will come back to him. Was Israel better off when they were worshiping idols and, and uh, doing all kinds of immoral and terrible things? Or were they better off when they were worshiping God and honoring him? But that's just the human side. The godly side is this. You have a responsibility to honor God with your life. And God is determined to help you achieve that. <laughs> isn't that a great thing? God isn't content to just stand up in heaven and say, well, I saved you. Let's see what you can do with it now. He loves us. And yet, have you ever looked up to heaven and say, what in the world are you doing, God? When those days come, I would challenge you to remember back and say, you know what? The very fact that I can talk to God, the very fact that I am a child of God, the very fact that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that where I am heading is heaven, needs to tell me that God loves me. Look at Romans 8.31. What then shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? That's us, Christian. Is it God? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril and sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor heights, nor depths, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God loves us. God loves you. If you're here today without Christ, be assured God really loves you because otherwise you wouldn't be sitting here hearing this truth. And if you walk out the door today saying, well, that's nice, maybe someday, then you are just like the people of Israel going, how have you loved us? I have a friend who has a very distinct and obvious physical impairment. 
far as I know, he's had it all of his life. And he was with a group of men and sharing about this a little bit. And he said this, and he's been married a long time. He said, my wife has never mentioned my impairment. And I, I got the impression from that that this is something he's, I wouldn't say ashamed of, but not proud of. And his wife is a lovely woman, and, and he says she has never mentioned that. And because of that, I love her. The scripture says something similar about us, doesn't it, when it says we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. Folks, if you're here today without Christ, be assured God loves you. You may have had some hard things in your life. But the very reason God may have allowed those hard things, like he did the people of Israel, was to get them to repent and to turn to God. Maybe you're a Christian and you've, uh, you've been fussing with God. You've been trying to get God to come onto your terms. You need to stop that today. I would encourage you, if you want to apply this message to your life, first of all, just embrace God's love and say thank you and perhaps repent of your attitudes otherwise. Spend some time in Malachi 1 this week. We'll be continuing on in the chapter next week. And then meditate on Ephesians 1.4 that says, You were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world that you should be holy. You weren't just chosen to go to heaven so you wouldn't go to hell, you know. You were chosen to be holy. And then this week, as you read Malachi 1, as you meditate on Ephesians 1.4, work at praising God for His unconditional love. Heavenly Father, thank You for loving us. You have loved us with a great love, and we don't deserve it any more than Jacob deserved it over Esau. Help us to appreciate Your love. Help us to live in it. Father, if there's somebody here today that's never put their faith in Christ, help them to do that right now, right today, to say, Father, I accept your gift of salvation through Christ. I lay down my own control of my life. I welcome him to be my Lord and Savior. Make that true in somebody's life today, Father. Father, for some Christian who's been struggling today, help them to let go. Help them to let go and just run to you and say, I'm sorry. I confess my selfishness. I confess being a spoiled child. Thank you for your love. Father, do your work in our hearts today. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Here we dismiss in prayer. Pastor Larry will be right here, right here in one of these places right at the front. You say, you know, I got something I got to work on today. I need to believe in Christ today. Don't walk out the door and leave a decision go undone. Maybe it's something, something else you need to work on. Pastor Larry's going to be right here. I'll be at the back. Either one of us will be glad to help you today to know that you're saved, to know that you're walking with the Lord. Let us encourage you in that way. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your great love. Help us to live in it. Help us never, never to be a spoiled child like the people, like your people did in Malachi and look up into heaven and question your love. Father, help us today to put that thought away and never bring it up again. 
Father, again, I would pray if there are decisions that need to be made, if there is, is salvation that needs to be obtained today, do your work in hearts. Cause us to come to you. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.